Um, there was a good friend of mine uh, who is a, uh, a kind of Christian speaker, quite, quite well known across the UK, so national. And uh, he was asked to co-lead a seminar at a conference. And um, so he looked forward to it. It was a good leadership topic. It was right up his street. And he started preparing for this conference. Um, but he got very little communication from the person he was supposed to be co-leading from the States. They just weren't really in touch with him. They weren't getting back to him on various things. Anyway, he carried on uh, regardless, and uh, the day came for the conference, the break breakout session was announced, and off he goes to the seminar, uh, large crowd there to kind of ready to go for it. And again, a little bit perplexed and a little bit perturbed by the fact there's been so little communication, he says to the, the, the other person that he's leading with, he says, so how do you want to work this? Do you want me to go first? Do you want me to go second? I'm pretty flexible. And he said, oh, it's okay, We I've got it sorted, can you just operate the visuals for me? I was slightly stunned. He said, sorry? He says, oh yeah, I've, I've got this in hand, so if you could, um, here's, here's my slides, if you could just operate my visuals for me. So he, uh, absolutely shocked by that, kind of loped off to, the, uh, to operate the visuals. And it was quite a humbling experience for them. And it really tested his attitude towards submission, towards servanthood, and probably towards anger management as well. And uh, our reading today is from the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And I think it's helpful to understand how this letter, which has been written to uh, the Ephesian church, kind of is put together, how it's structured. Um, as with many of the letters in the New Testament, or the, the epistles as we, as we know them sometimes, um, there's usually a chunk of theology at the beginning, and then there is... A, uh, the application of it is then worked out afterwards because what you believe affects how you behave. And we've looked at that a little bit uh, in the past. So, for example, if you, uh, as somebody recently won 123 million pounds on the lottery, my expectation is they will probably behave a little bit differently uh, as a result of that. They may spend differently, they may give differently, they may invest differently, they may even work differently uh, or not at all uh, in that particular case. Um, you might think of something like Brexit and uh, somebody who is on the Irish border issue, uh, somebody who's grown up through the troubles, somebody who understands the real experience of what happened in Northern Ireland all the way up to the Good Friday Agreement, might campaign differently about this issue because of what they know, because of what they've experienced um, as well, the truth that they're aware of. Uh, slightly more trivial issue, but closer to home, Aston Villa. Uh, when they won their 10th game with uh, Khadija heading in the goal, they started to think differently about how they were going to approach the, the, the playoffs. They've even ended up winning that. And they get, I think, 170 million in revenue comes in. Our hope is, if you're a Villa fan, that they will start to plan differently as a result of that. So what you know and what you uh, are aware of, the truth that you have, affects how you live your life. And so it is with the Christian life. Our, our doctrine, our theology, our truth affects how we live the Christian life uh, as well. And so Paul sets out in Ephesians what our riches are, okay? What our true riches are, which is not 123 million pounds, but it is our riches in Christ, the spiritual riches that we have. Because he knows that if we understand the wealth that we have, as he calls it, in the heavenly places, then that will affect our walk in the earthly places, in our everyday living, in an everyday life. So what you have affects how you live. And so Ephesians is structured like that. So the first chapter really is this amazing call that you are called to belong, that you belong to God and you belong to his body. 
um, this great thing that, that he heads up. And therefore, in chapter 4, he goes on and says, therefore, live a life that is worthy of that. So live in unity uh, one with another. And as each part does its work, okay, everybody contributes to that because you're part of the body. Chapter 2, the first half, this astounding statement that we have been raised from the dead. Okay, we were spiritually dead, and now we are spiritually alive in Christ. Okay, it is a phenomenal truth. Therefore, in chapter 4, verse 17 onwards, he says, because you're dead, put off your grave clothes. Okay? Get rid of your old ways. Bury the old ways and put on the new clothes, which is the clothes of purity. Okay? Live a life that, that um, reflects the fact that you are risen from the dead. And that's what we celebrate with baptism next week. And then in the second half of chapter two, there's this whole section on reconciliation, that we've been reconciled to God and with one another. Verse 14, Jesus made the two one. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, he goes on later on and says, therefore we walk in harmony with one another, submitting to one another. Um, as we do. And it all comes out of Jesus, who is the kind of the ultimate submission. He submits even his life unto death to bring the two together, to bring us to God, to bring one another. Therefore, live worthy of it. And then the final section is Jesus's victory over Satan, this great mystery that has been revealed in chapter three, um, that Jesus's grace overcomes all the things that, that keep us apart. Therefore, chapter six is live in that victory. Put on the full armor of God. Stand uh, strong in God uh, and walk into victory. So we're in chapter five, and that just gives you some understanding of kind of where we're coming from and where it fits in the whole side of things. So Paul sets out his doctrine so that it motivates us of why and how we live in such a way. And uh, what God has done is, is literally Jesus submitted to the Father okay, unto death to reconcile us to God, to one another, to make what is wrong become right. And therefore, does our walk reflect that as well as we submit one to another and live in that unity and harmony? Now, interestingly, in the Bibles that we have, the English versions of the Bible, verse 21 starts as a sentence. It has a capital S as to one another. However, in the original Greek text, it's not actually the start of a sentence. It's the end. It's the last clause of a long previous sentence. And it finishes with submitting yourselves to one another. And it's the whole verse, if you like, the whole sentence is about what are the marks of being spirit-filled? What are the marks of someone who is full of God's spirit? And the last of those marks is that we submit uh, to one another. And so it is a God-inspired, it is a spirit-empowered submission. And then he talks about different relationships, uh, parents, children, husbands, wives, which we'll go on to. There's quite a lot on the marriage relationship, but there's a lot for all of us to learn about what this looks like in all of our relationships and all of the situations we might find ourselves in in life. So we tend to focus on the, the word submit in the, in the marriage context, and we bristle a little bit because of the, it kind of seems to impinge on gender roles and controversial issues like that. But to get a real grasp, uh, I think, of what Paul's point is, we need to understand that everything he's about to say here is in the context and assumes uh, a Christian marriage where two people are filled with God's Spirit. They, have, they are people whose lives are already centered on God. They've already learned what it means to serve uh, one another. And Paul's move from the spirit-filled life to then talk about 
particular relationship of marriage teaches us a couple of things. First of all, the picture of marriage here is not of two needy people. It is not of two people who are unsure of themselves, who aren't sure about their value, aren't sure about their purpose, trying to find significance and meaning in each other's arms. Okay, because two vacuums that come together don't cancel each other out. You just get a bigger, stronger vacuum. Um, and Paul's assumption is that each spouse has settled those big questions of life. Okay, why we were made by God, who we are in Christ. And they're both in that dynamic relationship with God as they come together. The second thing it teaches us is that our souls need to be filled and fueled by God. Okay, in any of our relationships... Um, if we look to other people purely to fill up the tank uh, of our lives in a way that only God can do, then we end up draining one another dry. And therefore, we need to be, our soul needs to be filled and fueled by God. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, and it comes out of our relationship uh, with God and our worship of Him. And then in the next seven or eight verses, Paul calls each of those partners to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways, whether a husband or a wife. Okay, we are not to live for ourselves, but we are to live for one another. Wives, challenge, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, challenge, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 25. Okay, these are both highly challenging ways of living in our lives. Both are to abandon that self-interest for the sake of the other. And Paul is applying to marriage what is actually a general principle uh, for Christian living. Because every Christian who really understands the gospel, we are to go on un a radical change of understanding of how we relate to God and how we relate to people. As he puts it in Philippians 2, verse 2 and 3, he says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. In fact, the, the word is that doulos word, douloi. You know, it's a bond serve. So, yeah, so we, we're to consider others uh, better than ourselves and, and how we live in relationship uh, with each other in that. And so in any relationship, you know, spending the day with someone, you think about, you know, it could be a friendship, it could be uh, your marriage, uh, whatever. You spend the day with someone and you will be continually thinking through, okay, what do I want to do? What do they want to do? We have different personal preferences. And in those situations, you've got three responses. The first response is, I'm going to serve the other with joy. The other is I'm going to serve the other with resentment. Or the other is I'm going to selfishly insist on my way. So uh, Ruth and I, are, I would say, have got different tidiness thresholds okay, in our home. And uh, so last weekend, we had a decluttering day. That is a highly stressful day for me. And uh, so I've got the choice there of do I serve the other with joy? Do I serve the other with resentment? Or do I selfishly insist on my own way? And it's only when we're both kind of increasingly and regularly responding to one another in the first of those, you know, um, serving the other with joy, that marriages can thrive and that relationships can thrive. Okay, but that can be really hard at times. I can remember on a very practical level, you know, when we had very young kids and I'd come back from work and Ruth would be standing on the step outside with a baby with a crying baby, with a ever-increasing-in-weight crying baby. And the, there were days, I confess, when I would do an extra lap of the block before I actually went up the street, just to psych myself up for those moments. And um, Keller puts it like this, not quite that situation. Uh, do as many laps as you like, Andy. No, he didn't say that. He said, the main problem we have 
is the self-centered nature of the sinful human heart. Um, and it causes havoc in our relationships. It is an ever-present enemy in every marriage. Self-centered nature. But love, we read, is the opposite. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Uh, it doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude or um, dishonoring of others. It isn't self-seeking. Okay? It isn't easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And so we see maybe five warning signs uh, here. We see something like impatience you know, or irritability, uh, the lack of uh, kind of graciousness and kindness in the words that we might use, that envious brooding on the better situation of someone else, uh, or holding past hurts against others. You know, these are the things that are, are at the heart of what, what tear relationships apart and even marriages disintegrate as a result. You know, when divorced couples are interviewed um, about what they find, then, you know, what happens very often, most of the time, is that somebody's self-centered uh, way of living is responded to with their self-centeredness. And it just kind of begins to escalate and it begins to spiral uh, together. And the thing about self-centeredness is that by its very nature, it does two things. One, it blinds me to it. So we don't see it in ourselves, but we become hypersensitive to it in someone else. And therefore, we're easily offended, we're easily angered um, by that. And C.S. Lewis talks about that in his great chapter on um, uh, the great sin of pride, I think it is. But Jesus models this submission where he says profoundly, not my will, but yours. Okay, in order that all things can be reconciled, to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. Therefore, Paul teaches, walk together out of that, that theology, if you like. Verse 31, for this reason, he says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Some versions, versions use the word cleave. So instead of united, cleave. Uh, to your wife, and cleave to one another. And it's a slightly archaic word, but it has a better sense of the strength of the word because it literally means to glue together. You know, like the old Brian Ferry song, you know, come on, let's stick together, quite literally, which is all about the marriage vow. And um, when you become a Christian or when you claim Jesus as Lord or leader of your life, you are basically saying in every area of your life, I want Jesus to be Lord. I want Jesus to be the leader. I want him to be the one who is number one in my life. And that will affect the way that I work. It will affect the way that I relate. It will affect the people that I am with, perhaps. Um, and that will mean that there are times when we will have rights that are genuine rights that we have to give up or that we choose to give up. And we live in a generation and we live in a culture that demands its rights. And yet, we need to be people who often who see because the bigger thing of actually this is where uh, we give those up. Um, and that is a challenge to our society. That is a challenge to our culture today. Knowing that God has got a plan for the way that he can use you uh, through that. Jesus gave up his rights even unto his right to life for us. And so if you're following Jesus, you've agreed to a life of submission. And that will play out in every single relationship as uh, Paul kind of begins to outline here. So he talks about slaves and masters. Let's contextualize that 
closest thing is employers and employees. It's maybe not an exact science, but it, we, we can take it into that context. Um, for an employer, you know, seek the welfare of your employee. Um, uh, do your best for them. You know, encourage them rather than threaten them. That's the, that's the role that we're to play uh, in that situation. If we're an employee, then uh, we're to show proper respect. We're not to take advantage. Um, we're supposed to do a good day's work because actually the work that we do, everything that we do in our nine to five during the week or whatever shifts you work is unto God. It is it's glorifying to God. Okay? It is valued by God. Therefore, everything we do, whether you teach, whether you make, whether you manage, whatever your, your work is, whether it's in the community, whether it's in the home, um, it is to God and it is valuable to him. And so that relationship is important. So it's not about one lording it over the other, but it's about working as a team, employers and employees. It's about getting the most and the best uh, working together because God shows no favoritism. He, he makes no judgment as to who's, who's where. Okay? And actually both are answerable to God ultimately. And therefore we need to work our lives out like that. Parents and children. Children. Sarah wants to bring hers in to hear this little point now. Honor your parents. Okay? It means to show honor and respect, to care for them, you know, all of our parents, as long as they need us, to seek to bring honor to them by the way that we live our lives. Um, and someone said this, sin always robs us of life. Obedience enriches us in life. And, uh, and so we're all children somewhere, um, and yet we're to, we can be enriched as we obey um, or as we honor Parents, again, such an important part of society and such a challenging role um, that parents have. You know, without parenting, kids grow up as rebels. They've got no boundaries. They've got no sense of, of, of who they are. They're just completely lost in this world. And so we all need to train kids, whether we're parents or whether we're teachers, whether we're children's workers, whether we're grandparents, um, but particularly parents in this passage. Um, and the Bible is full, as the world is full of, sad results of when parents have neglected their children, either because of being poor examples or failing to discipline properly. Um, I was just looking at my, we used to run a, a parenting course uh, uh, in the community, and there was the three Ds, the three big Ds of where you, where you kind of challenge uh, kids. And it was dangerous behavior. Um, which is one. So, you know, when your kids start tormenting the ha hamster, that's considered dangerous behavior generally. So you challenge that one. Deliberate um, defiance. Never really seen much of that in my family. <laughs> like the challenge your authority. Uh, disrespect when they're rude, aggressive, damaging other people's property. Those, those are the things that we challenge. And yet it says don't exasperate them. Okay, particularly dads. Okay, any dads feel they've never exasperated their kids? Okay, it's such a challenge on, a, on an ongoing basis. And I rest assured it doesn't change when they get to 18. Okay, it continues uh, forever. Don't exasperate them, but look for ways to praise them. You know, even if you've got to set traps to find them doing something good, you know, find that one thing, catch them at it uh, so that you can praise them and encourage them and nurture them. And it says, bring them up in the training and the instruction uh, of the Lord, of God, of uh, the faith. So different relationships that affects us, but submission on the first level means I desire God's will in this situation more than my own. 
And so first and foremost, when it comes to making decisions, I submit myself to God's will for my life, even when it's not what I want. Okay? And that plays out in little ways, that plays out in big ways, uh, in little ways uh, in which submission uh, plays out in all of our relationships might be when you, you hold your tongue when you want to speak. And we know how challenging that can be. You know, when you ask for forgiveness, when you want the other person to ask you for forgiveness first. Okay, when you let something go, even when you know the person hurt you intentionally and willfully, but you let it go anyway. You know, when you choose to love someone who's maybe not that lovable, um, maybe at work or in somewhere. And uh, all of that is about submission. Okay, big ways, situations in your lives that uh, may not be of your choosing. Something comes along in your life that you are not choosing. Okay, maybe to do with your health. Think, oh, I was not asking for this in life. That's a big challenge. Okay, relational issues, family issues, work issues, financial issues, um, you know, these are all areas where we find ourselves learning to submit to God um, uh, for that. Okay, look into God's strength, look into God's provision, um, and look in to see how he will make a way through that. I think where people get kind of hung up a little bit with this passage, or where we may, perhaps all we do, is this the kind of submission in marriage. And we start to think about situations where people are, uh, you know, there's intent and there's willful damaging of other people, you know, where people are being really hurt, where there's toxic kind of relationship, where there's oppression with evil intent um, in a highly self-centered way. And we think, are we supposed to say to people, you submit into that? Well, absolutely not. You know, these are, these are not good things. Having said that, though, um, I heard of a woman just the other day, actually, who was married to a guy. Um, he wasn't a Christian. I don't know if they weren't, she wasn't a Christian before either, whether she'd become a Christian or whether she was already a Christian. I don't know what the situation was. But he was very vocally and fully against her participation in anything Christian. So he did not want her to get involved in anything to do with Christianity. Now, some people might say that is totally wrong. You know, you need to get out of that situation. Um, and it was, it was a pretty oppressive situation from what I understand. But she didn't feel that was what God had for her. She didn't feel that that's what God wanted her to do, but that she wanted to stay. And so she prayed for him. And uh, when he didn't want her to do certain things, then she chose not to do them. But she prayed and she cultivated her own relationship with God. We now fast forward a long 10 years, and he's a Christian. And their kids are, are growing up well in the faith and, uh, and growing with that. And um, that is not going to be everybody's situation. Okay? There are no promises of happy endings. Okay? And yet, that was her call. That was her call. And ultimately, her submission was to God in that situation. Submission is about God's lordship, God's will in your life, turning to him and trusting him. But how that plays out in relationships, we have to be realistic. You know, we live in a fallen world. We live in a place where there are toxic things that do happen. Not everything is going to end up uh, as a fairy tale. And not everything is going to be redeemed this side of heaven uh, on the earth. And that means there will be marriages, there will be relationships that end uh, in divorce, um, where there are toxic, where there are violent parts to it. 
And submission doesn't mean staying in that. But it also doesn't mean claiming our rights all the time and not being willing to have God's will at play in difficult situations. And so the bottom line that I want to leave you with is submission is a mark of the Spirit-filled life. Okay, It's something that God inspires in us and will affect every relationship that we have at different ways and in different times.